Welcome to the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. This episode contains a sermon from June 7th by John Jamar entitled, Jesus' Zeal for the Temple. Um, last time I preached on John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Jesus the Miracle Worker. Today we're going to cover the next passage, which is Jesus at the temple. This is all in the context of John chapter 2 through 5. John chapter 2 through 5 is all around one idea, Jesus seeing a need and meeting a need. Um, in the previous sermon, his mama brought him a need. He didn't want to do it, but he did it anyway. Good son, good mama. Um, this morning we're going to look at Jesus um, demonstrating his zeal for God's house by separating the secular from the sacred, by admonishing that we have uh, contaminated the spiritual with the worldly. So we get to see Jesus' zeal this morning, all in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. So if you follow along in the text with me, Let me read John chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, and then we'll kind of roll them out verse by verse. Verse 13 says, The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords, and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house. Well, you, you've read this passage before. You know what's going on. There's all kinds of things happening. But here, Jesus cleanses the temple, and he does it to really demonstrate his zeal for God's house, and he's separating the worldly from the spiritual, the, the secular from the sacred, as it were. So let, let's start at verse 15, because verse 13 is the setup. Let's look at verse 14 and 15 together. That's where he finds the money changers. He finds the people who are selling um, sacrifices, and he turns over the tables. He found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables, and he made a scourge of cords, cords and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins on the money changers and overturned their tables. Right? I asked Jeremy if I could have a table to flip. He said he'd work on that, but it didn't happen. Um, I never asked if I could have coins to throw out to you guys. Wouldn't that have been great? It would have been Monopoly money, so don't get too excited. Don't get too excited. Jesus, right here, he sees a problem. He IDs the problem, and he goes to action. That's what we see Jesus do. He sees a need, and the need is to solve a problem. And he steps up, and he meets that problem. He IDs the situation. He looks at it and says, this is wrong, and he steps up. And IDing a problem is, IDing a problem is difficult. IDing a problem 
requires effort. We have to actually observe. We have to listen. We have to take our emotions and ourselves out of it to see what's really going on. We have to identify the problem. Jesus identified the problem. They were conducting business in the house of prayer. Capitalism had invaded their spirituality, as it were. The spiritual had been tainted by the worldly. He ID'd it, and he immediately took action to solve the problem. And I love that. He didn't debate it. He didn't have a meeting. He didn't meet with the managers. So oftentimes, even if you identify a problem, we don't actually do anything to solve it. Right? How many times have you had that same conversation with the same three people where you've identified the problem that's going on and all you do is rehash the same thing over and over and over again? And in your mind, you know that you're going to rehash it again 15 more times. Solving the problem is a huge part of it. Solving the problem. Now that can be applied to our country. Oh my goodness, like the prayer time mentioned our state, our city. It can, be a, it can be applied to where you work. It can be applied to where I work. Identifying the problem and solving the problem can be in your household, among your family. Identifying and solving the problem can be, well, all about yourself. I know I, know I, I really struggle with this at my work. Um, My big frustration at work is it seems like the accountants and the lawyers rule the world. And I don't have any animosity toward accountants and lawyers, but I'm beginning to. And when you identify the most basic problem at my work, the two M's get in the way. Maybe you have problem with the two M's, the meetings and the managers. It's like, why do we have to have 15 meetings with 20 bureaucrats in order to solve this small problem? I just, I want to sneak out, solve the problem, and then like, how did that happen? I don't know. Uh, You know, write the check and move on is my response. Maybe you have that problem at work. Or uh, maybe it's a little, can I make it a little more personal, my friends? What about the pile of laundry at home? You know, the pile of laundry that started in the corner of the bedroom and then miraculously moved to the hallway. And it's been sitting in that hallway for, for long enough for dust to settle on the top of the laundry. And, and you walk by it. So when you first started walking by it, it was like, oh, that's weird. There's laundry in the hallway. Now it's been there so long, you even step around it in the dark, Right? You've observed the problem. Hey, take some action. Find the laundromat in your house, right? Move the laundry. It would take less effort to wash these clothes than you have spent three months walking around it. You're the two ends. You're the meeting and the managers, right? I mean, it's so much... It's so hard to identify problems. And then when we do identify problems, it's so hard to to shake our laziness and solve it. Jesus is our example. He's our example in everything. We want to be more like Jesus. Jesus identified a problem and took action to solve the problem. What's that expression from from the last decade? Um, He got her done. Get her done. 
get her done. We don't need to have a committee meeting. There's no reason to wait. Procrastination is the enemy of getting things done. Did Jesus procrastinate? No. He saw the problem. He did something about it. Let's us do that. When we see a problem, let's not procrastinate. Let's get her done at home, at work, in our grand, beautiful city and state, in our country. Let's do something about the problems that we know of. Instead of all this yapping, all you talking about it isn't doing anything. Unless there's action behind your words. You get the three guys sitting around drinking coffee solving the world's problems. They're really not doing anything if they don't put action behind it. Jesus put action behind it. And he got her done. Let's look at the next verse. Verse 16. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. 16. Ooh, I love verse 16. I love verse 16 because there are two imperatives in 16. I like commands. Commands are very clear. Then I know exactly where the boundary is, exactly what I'm supposed to do. And if I violate that boundary, I expect to get hit by a stick. That's just my upbringing. They, back in the day, those were called switches. Um, switches. I like commands. Do this, don't do that. Can't you read the sign? That hits my heart. I, I, can, I can follow rules. And here we have two commands. Take these things away and stop doing this. Take it away and stop doing it. Well, that's kind of part of identifying problems and solving problems as well, isn't it? Oftentimes, a simple action needs to be taken. Take it away. Remove the problem. Remove the laundry. Remove the middle managers. Remove the meetings. Maybe that's the action. And then stop. uh, Jesus says stop. You want to stop and chew on stopping. So oftentimes, my friends, we, let's just be honest, just you and me, Nobody's listening, but you and me anyway. Let's be honest. Sometimes we are part of the problem. If it's laundry in your hallway, you are absolutely part of the problem. Whether it's a work situation, a home situation, a culture situation, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Stop. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Just stop. Stop contributing to the problem. Be part of the solution. That seems pretty straightforward. Jesus said, take these things away and stop. Maybe it's a temptation that you constantly struggle with. Maybe it's something spiritual. The problem is a temptation in your life. Like beautiful chocolate-covered donuts with that creamy banana filling. How do they get the banana filling inside the donut without getting the banana filling on the outside? How do they get the donut part under the filling to like cook and not burn the filling? Uh, These are the questions. I'm not a baker. I don't know how to do that. But speaking of temptations, uh, obviously chocolate covered donuts with banana. Anyway, uh, My own issues, right? Uh, We all have our own issues. So what's my secret? What should I take these things away from? I should not go to Dunkin' Donuts. I should not. 
I should not. Krispy Kreme. They opened up a Krispy Kreme on Muldoon. I work on Muldoon. You want to know how many times I have driven by Krispy Kreme? A thousand times. You want to know how many times I've stopped in Krispy Kreme? Zero. You know how many times I wanted to go into Krispy Kreme? A zillion times. Take these things away. Stop. And there's a stop sign right there too, right? I mean, there's a red light, and then there's a stop sign in the Fred Meyer parking lot. I mean, they really set me up. The devil is active. Jesus said, take these things away and stop what you're doing. And if we, in any way, in any problem, are part of the problem, we need to take these things away and stop it. But... We're not very good at knowing ourselves. We're not very good at understanding our strengths and our weaknesses. We're not, under, we're not good at understanding if we're part of the problem or not. We just aren't. Um, we're not very good self-evaluators. We are either way too generous or way too critical. There doesn't seem to be an honest mark at all. You, you probably know who you are. You're either overcritical or you're overgenerous to yourself. Um, and, and so sometimes it takes somebody on the outside to say, you are part of the problem. That's why I'm helping you with the laundry situation. You are part of the problem, okay? I don't know about work. I don't know about the country and the problems that we are having. Ask somebody about that. Jesus identified the problem. He took action and he commands, take and stop. And we can live that, my friends. We can be part of the solution by taking and stopping. We really can. Now look at the next verse. The last verse. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's a Psalm 69, verse 9. Zeal. I read my fair share of uh, smart people in preparation for this sermon, uh, commentaries. And they seem to all talk about Jesus' anger at this event. How in, oh, they, 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 put, they put a positive spin on it. They call it righteous anger. How he is righteously angry and therefore he flips over these tables and throws cash to the crowd. You know, um, I don't see the word anger or angry or any emotional words in this text at all. We've looked verse by verse. I haven't seen the word angry in it. Cross-reference it in all you want. The word angry is not there at all. In fact, verse 17 tells us what is going on, my friends. This is zeal. Zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal. We don't use zeal very much. When's the last time you used zeal in a conversation? We need to bring that word back. If nothing else, it's fun to say zeal, right? I mean, it just puts a smile on your face. Zeal. It sounds like a superhero action. Zeal. I know. We don't, we don't, have, we don't use it. So it's not angry. Um, it's, it's not emotion in any kind of way. The, the word we use that is the same word for zeal, my friend, is passion. Passion. 
And if you want a cross-reference zeal, you can look at it in Psalms. You can look at it in Romans 10. Zeal for the Lord. Passion for the Lord. That's what it means. It's passion. What are we passionate about? Jesus, in turning over these tables and commanding to take and to stop, he's not being angry. Not even righteous anger. No. He's showing passion for the house of the Lord. Passion. Passion. He's passionate about it. And so he identifies the problem. If you're passionate about something, you scrutinize it, of course. You notice what its strengths and its weaknesses are. You take action to correct the weaknesses. You're passionate about it, so you you check your own involvement, so then you know if you're part of the problem or not, when you're passionate about something. Passion. Jesus was passionate for the house of the Lord. What am I passionate about? What are you passionate about? Now again, I think this is probably one of those things where we're not very good self-evaluators. Because you're going to say you're passionate for your spouse. They may disagree. You may say passionate for the Lord, because it's kind of, it's the Sunday school answer, right, in the text. So you're, going, you're, you're in church, you're going to say passionate for the Lord. may not be true. We're not very good self-evaluators. We're either too kind to ourselves or too harsh for ourselves. So let me give you a tip, my friends. On the car ride home, ask. Ask your dearly beloved, honey, the way I live my life, what does it say I am passionate for? Or, I mean, if you're, if you're a man or, and, or woman of faith and you're, you're strong in the Lord, ask your children. Go ahead. A 10-year-old's insight into what mom and dad is passionate for will blow your minds. And you know what? They're going to be brutally honest. So be prepared for that. We should be brutally honest for one another when we're trying to hold one another accountable toward godliness so that you and I can be living lives of faith like Jesus. If you're not brutally honest, aren't you really serving up lies? Let's be brutally honest for one another. I'm sorry, you're more passionate about the Packers than you are about Jesus Christ, if such a thing is possible. Based on how much money you spend at Walmart and Amazon, you're passionate about pottery. I figured that was a safe thing. I'm, I, I've never bought anything pottery on uh, anywhere. I don't know. I, I was being... The Packers one was a little too close to the heart, so I had to back off on the other one. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, but ask, what are you passionate for? Ask somebody and let them tell you. Because the answer is right. In the text, we are supposed to be, as followers of Jesus Christ, baptized, sanctified, redeemed by the blood, we are supposed to be living lives of self-sacrifice, of dedication, of following the master. We are supposed to be passionate for Jesus and Jesus' things. Always, not just Sunday morning. Our money ought to show that we are passionate for the house of the Lord. The way we live our lives, the things we say yes to, the things we say no to, ought to show that we are passionate about Jesus and his word. 
the way we talk ought to reflect our passion of Jesus. I've got a good buddy. He was a deacon of mine, and he was at a sales team meeting, and they had a trainer show up, and he wanted to break an icebreaker, right? An icebreaker doesn't actually involve breaking any ice. It's a way to get everybody in the room talking. And he said, tell us, tell us your, what your uh, hobby is. Go around the room. Tell, tell us what your hobby is, something like that. And he loves history, so he said, history. And then after the fact, it occurred to him that that was an opportunity to share his testimony. He could have said Jesus, or you know, he could have said Bible reading or something. Uh, he missed an opportunity. When thinking about hobbies or passion, he went to his hobby, which makes sense. Can you imagine living your entire life where your passion is gardening at the neglect of Jesus? Can you imagine if your passion is sports at the expense of Jesus? Jesus was demonstrating zeal in this passage, not anger. He was demonstrating passion by identifying a problem and solving a problem, correcting the situation. And that's the example for you and I, my friends. When I take this whole passage and I try to apply it. Application is the point of it all so that we can grow in godliness. I think about things I love, the church, zeal for the house will consume me. They had turned the house of God into a business. It offends Jesus when we turn church into a business. It offends Jesus when it's all about marketing and national appeal, profits and numbers. We're turning the church into a business. When you use business models to grow the church, Aren't you violating this passage? Now, probably the most in-your-face obvious example would be if we had a table selling Girl Scout cookies at the front. Um, you know, uh, eat them, buy them for me, but don't, uh, no, 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 no. Uh, that's the same thing as uh, donuts. Don't do, don't do, uh, but you know. But it applies to how we conduct our business. It applies how we conduct our business meetings. You know what we have invented to our Horrific shame, my friends. The American church has invented this. The CEO pastor. Have you ever heard that phrase, a CEO pastor? That, that has to be so offensive to the one true shepherd. I'm surprised that believers can say CEO pastor without hurling. I'm a business manager for Jesus. Well, then you're serving the enemy. I, I run a nonprofit. No, you don't. You're a pastor. If you think you're running a nonprofit, you are in the wrong activity. Go help Samaritans purchase something. The CEO pastor. That's what I love about our business meetings, my friends, that we have business meetings in the same place that we worship the Lord, that we eat of God's word. So that our business meetings ought to simultaneously glorify Jesus just like a worship service. That's beautiful to me. But this passage can also be applied to something a little more 
stepping on our toes, I'm afraid. You know 1 Corinthians 6, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. This is turning the temple into a place of business. The church isn't God's temple. This building isn't God's temple. No. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 says that you and I individually, our, our physical bodies are the temple of the Lord. So if you want to take this passage and apply it to you, then you are the temple of the Lord. So then the question that I ask is, do you have tables and money changers set up in your body? That'd be weird. That's some kind of anime cartoon special there. The temple was supposed to be about prayer and worship, and they had turned it into capitalism. So if you and I are the temple of the Lord, if your body is the temple of the Lord, how are you using your body to manifest its true purpose, prayer and worship? And how much, how much have you sacrificed the temple of the Lord, which is your body, to capitalism? If we were to look at your calendar and how you spend your time, do you spend more time with your body earning the dollar more than you do in prayer and worship? 40 hours a week, 60 hours a week, 80 hours a week, depending on your job. When we exist in order to pray and worship, in order to pray and worship, our priorities are all out of sync. When we come before the throne of the Lord, will he have nothing but giant tables of capitalism to flip over? Because you've spent 2,000 hours a year for 40 years changing money, selling doves, and not in worship and prayer. Is that how we will be judged in the end? Because we are God's temple. And Jesus is still zealous for the house of the Lord. And we are not to have our lives be about business. But our lives are supposed to be about Jesus. And again, my friends, we are horrible at self-evaluation. This is one of those but the Holy Spirit can convict us horribly. And we must listen and repent, my friends. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You are the temple of the Lord. How are you spending your body? Will you pray with me, please? Father, we come before your throne and we thank you for your grace and your mercy, your forgiveness, your love, indwelling us and allowing us to be your temple. And I pray, Father, that you would help us identify problems, solve problems, take and stop. And Father, I pray you would reveal to us through your Holy Spirit what we are passionate about and call us to repentance or call us to service. 
Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning into the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. For more information, check out our website at gbcak.org.